This is the last installment of the 2020 book reviews, and this will be books three through one. All right, number three is The Shape of the Liturgy by Dom Gregory Dix. It's a pretty big book. It's about 750 pages. It's a slog at points. He gets pretty into some ancient liturgies, but it's good. I appreciate it. I appreciate Dick's ironic tone to other traditions, even though he himself is an Anglo-Catholic monk. There are some Christians who have a pretty good grasp on the big picture and history itself. I think this particular monk is among them. I appreciate his survey of liturgical forms from the beginning of the Christian church to the present. Anyone who says that their liturgy has remained unchanged since the early church is lying. A basic and core form does persist throughout the ages, and it pervades the ancient forms. We can see it there. But the ancient forms were varied according to local customs, and liturgies developed extensively over time. Dix admits all this. He kind of glories in it. He loves seeing these kinds of things. Most liturgical type churches aren't really that ancient, right? They're a mixture of kind of medieval and late antiquity, those eras and kind of those developments, and they've crystallized and they've they've kept those. Of course, Vatican II allowed a lot more breadth and, and change with the liturgy. Some have noted that Dix quotes sources that are debated or seemingly non-existent, so certain aspects of his scholarship have been called into question. I don't know if these claims are true, but I don't think it detracts significantly from the book. Perhaps it does, but I just note it as something to be aware of and to do your own research if you're so inclined. But what Dix shatters is any idea that the church has ever had this kind of unified formula of words or overly scrupulous forms of worship. This is just undeniably true, and it messes up rad trad hair. Those who kind of have this unhealthy attachment and rigid obsession to particular forms and formulas. The other prominent thing Dix is doing here, and I don't fully grasp this, even though I've spent a lot of time in liturgics, is dismantling Cranmer's conception of the Eucharist. So in this sense, Dix is pushing in a more Roman direction. He disagrees strongly with what he calls Cranmer's Zwinglian outlook. I'm not sure this is fair to Cramner or Zwingli, but there are qualitative differences between understanding the elements as Dix does and, and as Cranmer does. There are differences. One thing I appreciated in this book is that Dix frequently draws the comparison uh, of monastic devotional life and Puritan devotional life. He does this in a commendatory way that both traditions are concerned with introspection, even solitude, and direct communion with God. It's fashionable to kind of bash Puritan introspection these days, and in some important aspects it did create problems, such as the halfway covenant defended by someone like Jonathan Edwards. But in principle, a rigorous introspective life striving for purity and direct communion with God is not only a good thing, but it's a great thing. And like all great things, it can be mishandled, abused, and done wrongly. But I appreciate Dix kind of saying, hey, look, the Puritans are carrying on this medieval tradition, really. I appreciated that. It's uh, very Catholic of him. So I'm just going to quote a pretty extensive passage from the book that kind of captures the essence of Dix at his stronger points, I think. Every rite which goes back beyond the 16th century is to a large extent the product, not so much of deliberate composition as of the continual doing of the Eucharistic action by many generations in the midst of the varying pressures of history and human life as it is lived. 
The immense local variety of rites represents the immense variety of cultures, races, and local circumstances in which the one body of Christ has incarnated itself by doing this in the course of 2,000 years. During that time, several great civilizations and empires and innumerable lesser social groups have risen and flourished and passed away. Many of them have left a mark in their time on the local liturgy as it survived them. In the wording of a few prayers or in some gestures and customs, on the cut of a vestment or some furnishing of the sanctuary, but under all this superficial variety, there is the single fixed pattern common to all the old churches of the East and the West, which was not everywhere wholly destroyed among the churches of the Reformation. This is always the same, not by any imposed law or consciously recognized custom that it should be so, but through the sole force of the fact that this way of doing the Eucharist alone fulfills every need of every church and every age in the performing of the Eucharistic action with its essential meaning. The outlines of that ritual pattern come down to us unchanged in Christian practice from before the crucifixion, the synaxis from Jesus' preaching in the synagogues of Galilee, the Eucharist proper from the evening meals of Jesus with his disciples, the needs of a Christian corporate worship gradually brought about their combination. The needs of a Christian public worship have added to these inheritances from our Lord's own Jewish piety only an introduction of praise and a brief prayer of thanksgiving. The whole has a new meaning fixed for all time in the upper room. But the form of the rite is still centered upon the book on the lectern and the bread and cup on the table as it always was. Though by the new meaning they have become the liturgy of the spirit and the liturgy of the body, centering upon the word of God, enounced, and the word of God made flesh. At the heart of it all is the Eucharistic action, a thing of absolute simplicity, the taking, blessing, breaking, and giving of bread and the taking, blessing, and giving of a cup of wine and water, as these were first done with their new meaning by a young Jew before and after supper with his friends on the night before he died. Soon it was simplified still further by leaving out the supper and combining the double grouping before and after it into a single rite. So the four-action shape of the liturgy was found by the end of the first century. He had told his friends to do this henceforward with the new meaning, for the anamnesis of him, and they have done it always since. Was ever another command so obeyed, for centuries after centuries, spreading slowly to every continent and country, and among every race on earth, this action has been done, in every conceivable human need from infancy into extreme old age, from the pinnacles of earthly greatness to the refuge of fugitives in the caves and dens of the earth, men have found no better thing than this to do for kings at their crowning and for criminals going to the scaffold, for armies in triumph, or for a bride and a bridegroom in a little country church, for the wisdom of the parliament of a mighty nation, or for a sick old woman afraid to die, for a schoolboy sitting, an examination, or for Columbus setting out to discover America. And he goes on to list like a page full of these kinds of things. It's really great, I think, but I've shortened it here. He goes into this. One could fill many pages with the reasons why men have done this and not tell a hundredth part of them. And best of all, week by week and month by month on a hundred thousand successive Sundays, faithfully and unfailingly across all the parishes of Christendom, the pastors have done this just to make the plebe sancta day, the holy common people of God. 
To those who know a little of Christian history, probably the most moving of all reflections it brings is not the thought of the great events and the well-remembered saints, but of those innumerable millions of entirely obscure, faithful men and women, every one with his or her own individual hopes and fears and joys and sorrows and loves and sins and temptations and prayers, once every whit as vivid and alive as mine are now. They have left no slightest trace in the world, not even a name, but have passed to God, utterly forgotten by men. Yet each of them once believed and prayed as I believe and pray, and found it hard, and grew slack, and sinned, and repented, and fell again. Each of them worshipped at the Eucharist, and found their thoughts wandering, and tried again, and felt heavy, and unresponsive, and yet knew, just as really and pathetically as I do these things, the sheer stupendous quantity of the love of God which this ever-repeated action has drawn from the obscure Christian multitudes through the centuries is in itself an overwhelming thought. It is because it became embedded deep down in the life of the Christian peoples, coloring all the via vitae of the ordinary man, the way of life, of the ordinary man and woman, marking its personal turning points, marriage, sickness, death, and the rest, running through it year by year with the feasts and fasts and the rhythm of the Sundays, that the Eucharistic action became inextricably woven into the public history of the Western world. <laughs> so sometimes he has these passages that I think are really good. I think he's a good writer, and then it's a really good history of the development of Christian worship. So that's number three. Okay, so number two... Let's see here. The Puritan Hope, Revival, and the Interpretation of Prophecy by Ian Murray. This is a great book that surveys Puritan eschatology that some might call postmillennial. What I appreciated most about this book is how he shows that the Puritans view, they viewed the Jews as still being significant in redemptive history, that the Puritans had a particular, though not absolutely unified, understanding of Romans 11 that the conversion of the Jews in history is going to be a significant event. This is how I've understood the scriptures. And unlike many modern popular postmillennialists, the Puritans were both covenantal in that they viewed the church as true Israel, but they also viewed the Jews as still elect, though apostate. And that's how I would understand it as well. In some ways, we are the David and they are the Saul. We are the younger brother. We are the Joseph and they are the older brothers. We're the Jacob and then the Esau. They've had this similar apostasy, but they will be redeemed eventually, just like Joseph's older brothers were reconciled to him. So the book is a historical survey of the Puritan hope, and he touches on various relevant topics like how 19th and 20th century progressivism essentially took the Puritan hope and gutted it of the gospel, leaving only this kind of ideology of a secular utopia, and how this has often soured Christians to their reception of postmillennialism because Christians don't make any kind of necessary and foundational distinctions between progressivism and postmillennialism. They just conflate them, and therefore postmillennialism is bad. He touches on the competing eschatologies of dispensationalism and their rise in popularity, which is, which is quite interesting. It's a good book dealing with an important topic, and it brings to light a glorious doctrine espoused by the Puritans and others like them, who may not have been Puritan themselves, but held to the same hope. I'll read this quote, another quote trying to capture the essence of this book. When John Wesley arrived in Newcastle upon Tyne in May 1742, he wrote these memorable words. I was surprised, so much drunkenness, cursing and swearing, even from the mouths of little children. Do I never remember to have seen and heard before in so small a compass of time? Surely this place is ripe for him who came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. 
and the great evangelical revival, so that's the end of the quote, and this is Murray, and the great evangelical revival, which was then dawning, proved this conviction to be right. The gospel of grace does not need promising conditions to make its reception a certainty. Such a result depends upon the will of him who declares his love to the ungodly. Thus, in various centuries, revivals of apostolic Christianity have broken out in the most improbable circumstances and have powerfully, rapidly, and extensively affected whole communities. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. Isaiah 59:19. The wonder of God's saving works ought therefore to make Christians slow to believe that only doom and catastrophe must await the vast population of this evil earth. If, as men predict, the world population is to double in the next 30 years, why should it not be that God is going to show on yet a greater scale that truth is more powerful than error? grace more powerful than sin, and that those given to Christ are indeed as the sand which is upon the seashore for multitude. Yes and amen. That's uh, really good. This wouldn't be like my favorite post-millennial book, but it's a good historical survey and kind of reviews a lot of these things. I appreciate it. I enthusiastically embraced the Puritan hope, so that's why it's number two. Okay, number one, Paradise Restored by David Chilton. I really like this cover art. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of like ridiculous, but I think it's great. Paradise Restored, A Biblical Theology of Dominion by David Chilton. This is probably the easiest to read and best treatment of postmillennialism I've read so far. It's not comprehensive, but it touches on enough relevant passages and elucidates them enough to be a solid go-to book for anybody not familiar with postmillennialism or wanting further treatment of it after being exposed to something like a primer of the topic, like Heaven Misplaced from Doug Wilson. If you're wanting something more exhaustive and academic, He Shall Have Dominion by Kenneth Gentry is is a good go-to. But this is a happy medium between those two kinds of books. Chilton addresses most of the key passages, like the Olivet Discourse and then passages in Revelation, which he describes as an elaboration of the Olivet Discourse, and I would agree. He also has this extensive appendix with quotes from Josephus about the destruction of Jerusalem, and these are incredibly helpful in understanding how terrible things were with the siege on Jerusalem. The things recorded by Josephus vindicate the biblical prophecies. Some people may think that these things are just kind of fun intramural debates between Christians, and some often just you know throw their hands up and say, I'm a pan-millennialist, it'll all pan out in the end. But when we take the preterist approach... It does a significant amount of work in proving the inspiration of scripture and then also just vindicating Christ's prophecies or just proving that God is a God who keeps his word and that he accurately predicts things. He knows the future and and what he says comes to pass. (laughs) And if we don't do that, we needlessly invite various criticisms or or just confused thinking, even among generally good thinkers like C.S. Lewis. For example, C.S. Lewis in The World's Twilight says this, and this is pretty horrific, but I'm just going to read it. He says, Say what you like. We shall be told the apocalyptic beliefs of the first Christians have been proved to be false. It is clear from the New Testament that they all expected the second coming in their own lifetime. And worse still, they had a reason, and one which you will find very embarrassing. Their master had told them so. He shared and indeed created their delusion. He said in so many words, this generation shall not pass till all things be done. And he was wrong. 
He clearly knew no more about the end of the world than anyone else. It is certainly the most embarrassing verse in the Bible. Now, I haven't read The World's Twilight in its entirety. I, I looked up, I found a little bit more of context online, so somebody can chime in and correct me. I don't know if this is Lewis actually giving his own commentary or if he's kind of situating himself in the voice of a critic. But the larger context that I, I saw is it seems like he was either he or through the voice of the critic or even the voice of a theologian, like putting himself in the voice of a theologian who has to explain this, basically says Jesus got it wrong, but he got it wrong in his humanity. And he goes through things like, well, in his humanity, Jesus probably asked questions that he didn't know the answer to. And so this was this failed prediction is one of those things that we can chalk up as part of his humanity. I reject this entirely, and Orthodox Christians should reject should reject this. And, you know, Lewis tells us in this work that he's not an expert on these things, and, and he certainly proves that here. He goes on to, yeah, seemingly resolve the issue by putting it into Jesus's humanity. But if these are his statements, these are, even if he's putting it in the voice of the critic, they're just incredibly ignorant and foolish statements regarding these things. The fact is, the Son of Man did return in judgment on Jerusalem. And just as the Jews didn't recognize when their Messiah came to save them, many Christians like Lewis still don't recognize when their Messiah came to judge them. Is it so strange to think that the people of God didn't recognize the coming of their Messiah in one instance, and the people of God don't recognize the coming of their Messiah in another? I think that these things are analogous to each other in some ways. We're, we're kind of acting like first century Jews in understanding what the coming of the Son of Man was. And of course, as I've said a million times elsewhere, there are different comings of the Son of Man. And and often the coming of the Son of Man in the New Testament isn't talking about the final judgment of all things. I bring that up only to say good on David Chilton for bringing in these Josephus quotes because it shows, oh, this is what Jesus meant. It did indeed happen. And as I'm going through in my post-millennial series elsewhere, I think I prove that we've misunderstood these things in a lot of ways, and the preterist postmillennial understanding sufficiently answers these, these criticisms. So Chilton also begins each chapter with a quote, often from an early father showing their postmillennial view of the world. I've heard numerous times from people that the early fathers didn't read any of this preteristically, they weren't postmillennialists, and of course there's variation in the fathers, and in some cases they didn't read it preteristically, but I have been absolutely astonished in just reading the fathers myself the amount of times i come across a preteristic passage athanasius on the incarnation when i read that i was like this guy's a post-millennialist i mean even the famous isaiah prophecy of the the lion lying down with the lamb obviously he takes figuratively as kind of this this time of peace and he sees that the the barbarians and the greeks um, are at peace with each other who have come to the school of Christ. He says that the Isaiah prophecy is being fulfilled, right? So even passages that I wouldn't even read totally preteristically, he's preteristically reading them that way. And this is in a lot of the lot of the writings of the fathers. So it's nice that he kind of puts some of these in there. So Chilton includes these brief quotes before each chapter. I couldn't find a passage that kind of like summarized the spirit of the book, really. But here's a couple of good quotes on interpretation. He says, understanding biblical symbolism does not mean cracking code. It is much more like reading good poetry. <laughs> he says, when the Bible tells us a story about water, it is not really telling us about something else. It is telling us about water. But at the same time, we are expected to see the water 
and to think of the biblical associations with regard to water. The system of interpretation offered here is neither literalistic nor symbolic. It takes the water seriously and literally, but it also takes seriously what God's word associates with water throughout the history of biblical revelation. And I would affirm that. This is the same way that I would read scripture. Here's a good quote about dominion and why Christians are losing on virtually every front, and this passage would need to be further developed with kind of covenantal understandings in mind. Various distinctions would need to be made resist about what resisting the devil looks like. And I do, I do that in Contramundum Swagger, if anybody is interested. But in general, this is a really good quote. It's kind of a long one, and then we'll finish. A very common evangelical worldview is that the earth is the devil's and the fullness thereof, and the world belongs to Satan, and that Christians can expect only defeat until the Lord returns. And that is exactly the lie that Satan wants Christians to believe. If God's people think the devil is winning, it makes his job just that much easier. What would he do if Christians stopped retreating and started advancing against him? James 4, 7 tells us what he would do. He would flee from us. So why isn't the devil fleeing from us in this age? Why are Christians at the mercy of Satan and his servants? Why aren't Christians conquering kingdoms with the gospel as they did in times past? Because Christians are not resisting the devil. Worse yet, they're being told by their pastors and leaders not to resist, but to retreat instead. Christian leaders have turned James 4-7 inside out and are really giving aid and comfort to the enemy because they are, in effect, saying to the devil, resist the church and we will flee from you. And Satan is taking them at their word. So then, when Christians see themselves losing on every front, they take it as a proof that God has not promised to give dominion to his people. But the only thing it proves is that James 4-7 is true. After all, including its flip side, that is, if you don't resist the devil, he won't flee from you. What we must remember is that God doesn't rapture Christians out of the world in order to escape conflict. He raptures non-Christians. He's kind of playing with the word rapture here. The Lord Jesus prayed, in fact, that we would not be raptured. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. And this is the constant message of scripture. God's people will inherit all things, and the ungodly will be disinherited and driven out of the land. For the upright will live in the land, and the blameless will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be uprooted from it. Proverbs 2. The righteous will never be uprooted, but the wicked will not remain in the land. Proverbs 10. God described the land of Canaan as having been defiled by the abominable sins of its heathen population, saying that the land itself vomited out its inhabitants, and he warned his people not to imitate those heathen abominations, so that the land may not vomit you out also. Leviticus 18. And Leviticus 20. Using the same Edenic language, the Lord warns the church of Laodicea against sin and threatens, I will vomit you out of my mouth. In his parable of the wheat, the godly, and the tares, the ungodly, note the Edenic imagery even in his choice of illustrations, Christ declares that he will gather first the tares for destruction. The wheat is raptured later. Matthew 13. The wealth of the sinner is stored up for the just. Proverbs 13. That is the basic pattern of history as God saves his people and gives them dominion. This is what God did with Israel in saving them. He brought them into an already settled land, and they inherited cities that had already been built. Psalm 105. God does bless the heathen, in a sense, just so they can work out their own damnation. In the meantime, building up an inheritance for the godly. 
Then God smashes them and gives the fruit of their labor to his people. This is why we need not fret over evildoers, for we shall inherit the earth. Psalm 37. The Hebrew word for salvation is yesha, meaning to bring into a large, wide-open space. And in salvation, God does just that. He gives us the world and turns it into the Garden of Eden. Yeah, it's just a really great book. Eschatology is more important than sometimes we give it credit for. It encompasses so much of Scripture. The story of Scripture, rightly understood, will lead you into understanding the world better and what God is doing in the world, how he interacts with the world, and where the world is going. And so this touches on virtually every aspect of the Christian life. So this is a good book dealing with that. Easy read, like I said, you could read it quickly, and the prose are, are easy to get through quickly, and it's not overly complicated, but it's it holds up pretty well. So that was my number one book for 2020. We'll see you next time. Bye.